Welcome to Travel Unites Us, a podcast featuring stories straight from the heart of travel. I'm Aaron Schlein, and I'll be your co-pilot on this journey. My friend Rich D'Ambrosio and I started Travel Unites Us to share the human stories from real travelers, stories that get to the heart of who they are and what they do. Be sure to check out TravelUnitesUs.com for all the latest from the Travel Unites Us community. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you happen to be on planet Earth. Very pleased to be joined this morning, this morning here in California where I am, with by Alexandra Talti, an American journalist and writer. Alexandra is a senior contributor at Forbes where she covers travel. That was what she was doing as of a few weeks ago, but most recently she fled her adopted hometown, uh, home country of Lebanon, and headed back to her home in New York State. Alexandra, welcome to Travel Unites Us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm loving this series. And I think, you know, it's an interesting time for travelers and the world. So I'm happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you. And you've got a, a compelling story. And I was just telling Alexander before we went live here that her story is fascinating enough without the coronavirus and fleeing Lebanon. And we're, go- we're going to get into all that stuff the the fleeing Lebanon part portion of your story in just a minute. But let's get to know you a little bit because there's so much, there's so many layers of Alexandra and it's not all about coronavirus. So give me a, a little bit of your your background. You say you've lived in four countries on three continents and you describe yourself as a serial expat. So give me a little bit about what it was like for you as a kid. And if you can pin down some moments that you found particularly transformational that set you off on this unique path of serial expat. Thanks. Um, you know, I, I love that you ask about being a kid and I feel like that's a very, it definitely is a great way to talk about your relationship with travel. I, we didn't go on many trips. My mom is from California. My dad is from New York. So our big family trip every year was visiting our family in California. And then at some point when I was like 10, we went on a family trip to Ireland to visit my dad's family there. And I just remember we, and we stayed with our cousins and um, in T- Tipperary and Meltown Mall Bay. And I just remember being fascinated going to the grocery store and seeing all these different products. And, you know, that my cousins, whenever we'd say bye, they would say, oh, God willing. Like, <laughs> the, 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 I remember thinking like, wow, this is so crazy that there's this other world where they have the same family, same relationships, same, you know, you go to work, you go to school, but everything else is different. Like I play field hockey, they hurl, you know, like, um, and yeah, I think that that was the first time that I, this little spark happened in my mind. And every time I travel and whenever I, when I started to live abroad, I first moved to Italy when I was 18. Um, it was my first year of university, but I was very young to be like, living outside of America. And every time I've had one of those experiences, I feel like it's a similar spark. And it feels the same as when I was 10 and kind of in this place where they all spoke English. And, you know, in some ways, some of the things that I've done might seem more intense, but it it feels the same as that. Well, you talked about launching into your career and you're living abroad so young. Just reading through your bio, if someone didn't know who you were, they might expect a much older woman to be showing up on the screen here. You've, you've had a pretty, uh, I hate to use the word meteoric rise. I can't think of a better word at the, at the moment, but let's go back to that time when you were 
18, 19, and you're sort of figuring out, it sounds like you had a clear passion for travel and exploring the world, but you wanted to do it, figure out a way to do it as a profession, as, as part of your life, not just as a, you know, one or two weeks a year, go take some vacations and then come home. Like you made exploring the world part of your day-to-day life. Tell me about that process and that, what was, what was going on at that time? Yeah, I have to say, um, that's one of those things. I think whenever you meet people in this space, like it's like our best quality, but also our worst quality, you know, like I'm really good at going on a three week trip that ends up being like a month long or like two months of reporting. And then I'm like meeting new people. Um, when I was 18, it was, it was through my university actually. NYU was like our first year abroad or first year for school was abroad. And it was this amazing program where it was with 100 international students and then 20 Americans. And they brought us there to kind of give them a more American college experience in Italy. So it was kind of weird. It felt like we were like the token, like American (laughs) culture, but we were in this villa surrounded by olive groves. Um, what is a token American culture to, to an Italian? Like the, what is that caricature <laughs> of the American culture that they were trying to create for you? Oh, just like beer game, playing drinking games. I would say that was like, that was our big cultural input because a lot of the kids, they were, they were, a lot of them were third culture kids. So like from Hong Kong, but grew up in Singapore or Brazilian, but parents were Spanish. Um, and so we were there, we we're like, yeah we're from America and you know, it was, it was an interesting kind of clash. Cause I think in some ways you don't realize in America that we're a very monoculture. I mean, I know we have, as Americans, we have a lot of immigrants and people from all over, but a lot of times like our cultural experience as America is always in the lens of America. And I think that was the first time that I realized that like, Hey, there's these kids that, you know, grow up in Asia and live in five countries and don't really have any interest in America at all. You know, I think we, so that, I think in that sense, that was a really good experience for me. And then um, after that, I backpacked around Eastern Europe for a month with one of my friends, which at the time we were also 18. And I just remember going to these hostels and people would be like, you're so young. And we're like, we're so old. What are you talking about? Like, of course we're 18 and we should be in Prague and like. Well, not that there isn't a beauty in just continuing to to roam the earth on presumably a shoestring budget, but at some point you made a transition to becoming a professional traveler in your in your beginning of a journalism career. So, how did that all start? Yes, I think I when I look back, you know, I after school I worked for a mag I worked for Forbes magazine while I was in um, at NYU. So I could go there two days a week and I was working in communication. So when I graduated, I ended up managing all the publicity for Forbes.com, even though I was 22. And it was, it's like the only three years of my life where I have had a desk job and I only had two weeks vacation. And I remember feeling like at the time, like it was strangling me, but I loved my colleagues. I loved Forbes. I still write for them, obviously. So in a sense, I think that that time and seeing what the rest of the kind of quote unquote, like normal world is like really made me realize that I wanted something different, but it also kind of showed me that 
to do something different, you have to be able to work in that world. You know, you have to be able to be on top of things, pitch yourself, send out things about yourself and really uh, hustle if you kind of want that success. So after doing that, when I was 24, I'd saved up, I think 15 grand. And I had this idea. I was like, I either can use this as a down payment for a house. I mean, like continue on this path and this will be like my beginning of a house or I will take it and go to Lebanon. And um, I remember my boyfriend at the time and my sister were both like, Alexandra, like you obviously want to go to Lebanon, like just do that. So I, I moved to Lebanon and at first I was actually a tech reporter when I moved to Lebanon cause I, I had been doing communications. And so, um, I knew I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know like what kind of writing and, uh, someone I'd interviewed at Forbes who was a journalist I admired told me that it was good to be an, um, to do the kind of writing that is with people, interview people that are your age. So that was a big, um, a benefit for me. And then I, one of the editors at Forbes, she had me write these postcards from Beirut when I first arrived. And the first one I filed, it was like five days after I arrived and I ended up becoming kind of like internet famous in Beirut, but it, it wasn't good. It was known as like the postcard girl. And, <laughs> um, were you recognized so was, in public? Yeah. Like, yeah, it was, it was, which, like now I can look back, but I remember there was a time when I thought like, oh my God, I'm never going to live this down. And it wasn't anything bad, but I think in Lebanon, a lot of, um, there's a, there's a tendency for international journalists to come and do these kind of like hit pieces that don't really get the country. And I think that people thought that that's what it was, but it, it was not. Well, let me put you on the spot here. Can Is there any one particular story, hope preferably funny, but it doesn't have to be funny, that comes to mind about being the postcard girl and being that internet famous and being recognized in public. Anything just bubble to the top? Yeah. So I was, because <laughs> I'd moved there with this money, but I obviously wanted to not, I wanted to sit, get a job and I was transitioning careers. So I figured I like needed to get my, um, get a job ASAP. And so I go to this interview with this business magazine that a friend had connected me to. And they were really keen because I'd worked at Forbes. So they figured like it would be, they, I could help with them with some of the business and advertising side, but I would be a copywriter. And so I'm on my interview and actually the guy who said this, I'm friends with now, I still know him, which is so funny. Cause I remember being so intimidated. He was like, Oh wait, like halfway through my interview for like my job in this country that I just moved to two weeks ago. He was like, Oh wait, you're the postcards girl. Oh, yes. and then he, him and the editor of the magazine just started like laughing. And I was like, oh, I'll never get a job in this country. Like, <laughs> And I got the job in the end. And then they ended up hiring me for my first ever like paid piece. So, so let's talk Lebanon. That's, you sounds like as you're telling the story there, it sounds like you were specifically attracted to, to Lebanon. What, what, what was the attraction? And you lived there, you've lived there for a decade. Yeah. Um, on and off, but yeah, a long time. I basically spent all of my twenties there. Um, I, I studied middle Eastern studies in university and, uh, also creative writing, but I always knew I wanted to live in the middle East and, 
Um, so when I was working at Forbes, I remember I was looking at a map and I was trying to figure out where in the Middle East I wanted to go. I'd applied to work at a school in Jordan. Um, I think I also applied to work at NYU in Abu Dhabi, but I was like, you know what? I don't really want to work in a school. Like I want to be a writer. So let me just pick a country that kind of makes sense. And I'm a surfer. So Lebanon's on the sea. Um, it has waves. I didn't really look that much into it. Turns out it has a really cool surf community. Um, so I was lucky in that respect. But um, yeah, I just, I figured it was a city on the sea. They spoke Arabic. It was a kind of, there's different dialects of Arabic. And that was a dialect that I wanted to learn. Oh yeah, there's me surfing my old home that. break. Right, sorry, I couldn't resist. Alexander sent me some photos <laughs> I'm going to be dropping in periodically throughout and since you mentioned surfing i figured this was a good one to start That's with perfect yeah basically honestly it was that it was a middle eastern country on the sea with waves but and then after that i think obviously i stayed for a lot more reasons than that let's get into some of those some of those reasons and, and the reason i ask i'm asking partially selfishly and then also for the benefit of folks watching i well, I grew up in the 80s and we didn't hear a good thing about Beirut for a long time. So I'd love a little bit of an education from an American expat who spent so much time there. What's it like today in 2020? So I can help kind of expunge some of those those news stories that we were flooded with in the in the 80s. Yeah, it is funny. I noticed when I moved there, there's like certain age groups of people that are really that obviously grew up at a time or were watching a lot of news at the time when the Lebanese civil war was happening, because I feel like people who grew up in the eighties. And then also I feel like just some, it, it's, it's interesting. I think it was one of the first wars that was broadcast on 24 seven TV. So I think that's part of the reason why people have this very lasting impression of what happened there. Cause I think for some people it was like the first war that they saw on TV. That's just a, a side theory. But nowadays, it, it's definitely not at all like that. Um, there was a peaceful revolution in October. So, you know, in 2020, the situation is a bit more difficult than it was when I first moved there. I mean, the thing, what everyone always says about Lebanon, it's a beautiful country. There's mountains, there's sea, you know, the people are really welcoming. They speak French and English and Arabic fluently. So the, as a traveler, that makes it super easy to get around. Anywhere you go, people will speak English. Um, and there's a really welcoming food culture. I think because it had this bad reputation and because it was isolated from the world, you know, Lebanese people have one of the worst passports in the world, so they can't travel as easily. They're, they're really excited for people to come there and they're really excited to share their culture. You know, if you rock up in Beirut and you met someone on a Saturday night, like they could invite you to their family's barbecue on Sunday. And, and if you do get invited, you must go. That's a must. It, those are, that's one of the best things in Lebanon. All right. I'll remember, I'm going to put that in my back pocket for when I go visit. If you get invited to the barbecue, you don't miss it. Yeah. Always go say yes to the Sunday barbecue. I'm going to throw up a few more pictures here if you don't mind. And they're not in oh, any sure. particular order, but if you just comment on this is clearly you. <laughs> that was one of my goals, I think in 2017 or 18 to learn how to ride a motor scooter. And without a helmet, no less. Yeah, that's not a good tip. <laughs> Hey, we're, we're, I wouldn't recommend that one, guys. We're keeping it real, keeping it raw, even all the, the good choices and the bad. And the bad. Mom, I hope you're not watching. 
What oh, do we got here? Baalbek. So it's actually one of, it's the best preserved Roman temples in the world. And it's incredible because A, it's been in this region of Lebanon where there's a lot of fighting, or there has been, especially in the Syrian civil war, they, there was a lot of spillover because you're probably like 10 miles from Syria. Um, and it's an area that um, has a lot of kind of warlords and families and stuff. It's safe as a tourist, but when things get tense in the country, you wouldn't want to go. Like, I think when I lived there in 2015, I couldn't go or I couldn't bring friends. But if you, if it's safe to go, it's honestly one of the most impressive ancient ruins because there's not that many tourists. You can just walk around. You can have a picnic. It's incredible. Generally speaking here, as a, as a tourist or as an American expat, when time, when there's those times of strife, like you described, are you say you're more or less or about the same uh, in terms of safety relative to the local population? Um, yeah, I think that's a good question. I have never felt unsafe in the way that I think people expected me to like targeted as an American. Right. Um, the, uh, but at the same time, like I lived in a small town at the end of my time in Lebanon, like a small beach town and everyone there, like no one ever looks at me and thinks that I'm Lebanese ever. Like I just don't have a Lebanese face. And I think that always looking like an outsider, cause it's a very homogenous population in that, you know, there are 4 million people. Um, there's a lot of diversity in that, but yeah, I don't look Lebanese. And I think sometimes that kind of standing out can it's not dangerous but it's just something that you have to navigate like when i was going to the protests i knew everyone was looking to me like as a foreigner and that's a responsibility that i think sometimes can be burdensome if that makes sense it does and okay so what do we got here and i think we're going to hear a little bit more about this four-legged friend here as we get more into your story. I hope this isn't digging up any bad memories, but you did send me this picture, so okay. I presume it's okay to show it. We're going to skip on from that for this for a moment, but we're going to get back to our friend here. What do we got here? Oh, for some reason it's not. Oh, is that? That's Baalbek again. And actually, oh, this is so cool. If you see how there's like these like scratchy things kind of above my head, right that here. is, yeah, that's graffiti from the 1800s. Get out of so, town. Like above my head, see where there's like that dark line? Basically, yeah. it was buried up until there in the 1880s. And these like Greek and Turkish, although at that time it was the Ottomans, it's Greeks, Ottomans, and then I think, and then some other countries, they all came and they excavated it. So you see this, it's so cool. It's like Arabic graffiti, Greek graffiti. You can um, sort of make it out. Yeah. And if looking real closely here, folks at home may not be able to see this, but I've got a pretty close yeah. shot. 1886. There's a date carved right here. 1886. Isn't that, it's so cool. It's really amazing. And actually because they, oh, that's, um, so that's the center of the Beirut revolution or the Lebanese revolution. It's this area called Martyr Square. And so traditionally in the country, like when they got, when they wanted to get rid of the Ottomans or when they wanted to get rid of the French, um, sensing a theme, but yeah. they would all congregate in what they call Martyr Square. Although I think it was called Martyr Square after I think the Ottomans executed martyrs. 
But so this was kind of the center of the October Revolution. And they made this sign and it says Saura, which is revolution. What is this thing in the background here? This it's kind of deep, kind of forest green. It looks like a big bubble. I don't know if that's anything so special. That's, that you have such a good eye. You keep asking me all the like really good questions. So that's the egg. And it's like this, re when I first moved, it wasn't, you weren't allowed to go into it. And apparently it was this theater that had opened right before the Lebanese Civil War. And it's really cool inside, but half of it was destroyed. And the two, I guess it's friends or brothers, the two men that owned it are were in a fight. And so they, um, the one guy refused to let them tear it down. So it just stood there since the 80s like that i think it was hit by an israeli missile that's what people always say but um and then in the revolution people broke into it and it became this open air gallery and like oh honestly my. when i first moved it for the first five years i lived there you really couldn't get in you'd have to sneak in past guards and stuff um and then it was really amazing it was like this total public space takeover and all, they would host talks in there about like the corruption in Lebanon and it became this kind of focal center and this kind of guerrilla gallery. It looks like there's people standing on the top of it. Yeah, that was actually really dangerous. Like yeah, I, dangerous. I went there with some friends to see, like I knew there was a ladder on the side and then we saw the ladder and we were like, nah, I'm okay. Like, <laughs> Well, it's not as dangerous as riding the scooter without a helmet, but almost. <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> Alexander, you sent me several more pictures from, from Lebanon, and I'm going to post those on, on the website. But in, in the spirit of moving things along, I would like to get, Alexander, to your story of present day. We showed some pictures of happier times, and in fact, that last photo may have been a perfect segue now to the not-so-happy times. You get a call or some, some sort of a notification sometime in the last few weeks. It says, you got to get the heck out of Lebanon. You got to get home to the U.S., Take us through that story start to finish. Yeah, well, that's actually the crazy part is the lack of communication from the State Department, but I'll, I'll leave that in. Um, okay. Essentially, I was planning on moving back to the U.S. on March 18th. And just to be closer to family, I'd been there for a really long time. And so I was going, this was March 11th, I guess. And I was taking my dog to the vet for his checkup because you have to go like a week before you fly to get this special shot. And I'd been calling the Qatar Airways desk in Lebanon like every couple days about my dog's ticket. I was just really nervous. And then with coronavirus, I got more nervous. Um, and I'd really been tracking it. Like I'd been every day going on IATA's website, seeing, because I had to go through Qatar. And Qatar had some early cases. So I saw that they were starting to limit travelers from Lebanon to come into the country, but not flights yet. But it just every day it got it seemed like more and more countries were adding more and more places that people couldn't come from so i called them on my way to the vet to just be like oh he's going like let's just finalize everything and they didn't answer and then when i was at the vet i got this notification that lebanese couldn't go to the qatar and that the um lebanese that there's no stopovers allowed so i freaked out and then I couldn't get through to them. And I'd been on the phone with them. Like I knew them by name. It was so easy to get through every other time. And all of a sudden, 24 hours later, it was incredibly difficult. So I finally get through 
and I'm like driving with my dog. He's had his shots. Um, and they're like, Oh, Alexandra. Hi, how are you? Um, yeah, your ticket was canceled. I was like, what, what do you mean? My ticket was canceled. They're like, yeah, it, it was just canceled, but the system is so overloaded that you're, you're not going to get an alert, like a rebooking until a couple days. And I was like, what? They're like, yeah, don't worry about it. Just, it's fine. And I was like, no, no, that's not okay. So then I tried to get in touch with the American Airlines desk in America because it was like Qatar through American um, because I used miles and couldn't get through. And then I couldn't get through to the Qatar, the American Airlines desk in Qatar. Finally, after three hours, I got through. They were like, yeah, we can't. Your flight is canceled. You will be rebooked. And I was like, but can I be rebooked like tomorrow or two days from now? Because obviously a week from now, I just don't, I just don't see myself being able to fly from Lebanon to the U S because also the thing that always worries me about Lebanon is that you have to go through another country to get to America because of this political disagreement with Mm -hmm. the Lebanese government and the American government. But in terms of safety, that just makes it way more difficult because if Europe is shutting down flights and then the Gulf is shutting down flights, how do you get from Lebanon to the US? Right. So I'm on the phone with my sister. I was like, Seton, if, if my t- dog's ticket is still valid, like I'm going to try to work to change this ticket or like book another airline that I know will take dogs tomorrow. But if his ticket's canceled, like I think I should just go. So then... I find out that his ticket's canceled because at that time, the WHO didn't know if um, animals could transmit coronavirus. So Qatar Airways, like basically all the airlines that usually take dogs canceled their tickets. And I'm also, at the same time that I'm like on Skype calls with American Airlines in Qatar, I'm also calling the airport vet, calling my friend who's a breeder, like, and trying to pack. It was crazy. (laughs) And so, you're still working at this point? Were you, did you have any, any deadlines? Were you reporting Oh, yeah. In? I was also chasing what it would have been the, like a career-making story for me. The reason why I was even staying, I was supposed to be interviewing um, this really important person. And it literally would have been a career-changing interview on like March 17th. And his people had not confirmed it. And I was like emailing them too to be like, listen, I'm about to leave the country. Like I need you to confirm this. And I'd been chasing this story for two and a half months. Um, They actually gave me the interview, but I was already in the airport then, which I honestly think it was a stroke of luck because if they had agreed and I, they've been supposed to email me back like five, five days previously. But if they'd agreed, I would have stayed and I definitely would have been stuck now. So that, that was going to be my guess is that you would have been put in that really difficult position of having to choose the interview over getting home. And as a professional journalist, Alexandra, I think we know what you would have chosen. Yeah. Yeah. I would still be there. That's for sure. Or I'd be on the flight today. <laughs> so let's talk. So, I mean, you, so you left the dog behind and you left. The dog, what's the dog's name? Leo. You left Leo with whom? So he is with, my friend is a breeder. And so he sends dogs, oh, baby Leo. Um, He sends dogs all over the world. So he is going to come to America. And like, it's so funny. Every five days, it seems like um, 
he'll call me and he'll be like, Alexandra, like we have a flight maybe. And then the airport vet guy will be like, yes, yes. And then inevitably 12 hours later, the flight falls through and he sends me this voice note and it's really funny. Pierre. Are you getting getting photos? I'm just imagining that this is like, that's a a compelling story in and of itself. That could be a Disney movie someday. The dog fleeing Lebanon with Leo. I feel like I'm in a Disney movie like with that. And then it, yeah, I'm, I'm also, I, I, I know it'll work out, but I do feel like I'm like negotiating like with all these people and then like emailing the state department about my dog. Like I did not know I was that level of a dog person, but I guess <laughs> we're all learning so much about ourselves during this time. Yeah, it's true. So I think true. when we write the script for that movie, we have to write it. So Leo and Pierre don't get along very well in the beginning. And then they, oh, they develop yeah. a mutual respect over time. And then Pierre sheds a little tear when the plane finally takes off. Cause I know it's going to have a happy ending. But we're yeah. still writing the story. I love that. Yeah. It's mostly the movie would mostly be about Leo. And then it would just be this crazy lady like calling people right. constantly. I'm in. I think we got a hit on our hands here. <laughs> I know Disney Plus is pushing those movies straight to the top of the queue these days. They're not even waiting. They're keeping Oh, really? Have you been noticing that? Yeah, there's movies that have been that were in the theater just a couple weeks ago when no one was going to the movies and they're just like, Well, we got no eyeballs for these films. Let's just put them up and we're watching essentially new movies. <laughs> Oh, that's nice. It's one of those little silver linings, I suppose. Yeah. How's it going with your family? I feel like the people that have kids at home are not getting this like quarantine boredom situation. I wouldn't call it quarantine boredom. There's definitely a a symptom or there's a a negative side to it. And it's just trying to balance this new like homeschool. If you if you make homeschool as a choice, if you're a parent who mm-hmm. chooses homeschool and you're able to set up your life and set up your space around this choice, that's one thing. For people like me and 90% of most parents out there, that wasn't the choice we made. So now this is kind of a, a, a choice or a situation that's been forced on us, and we just have to instantly figure out how to integrate this into our lives. I'm still working full time from home. My wife, thank goodness, is now finally going to be working full time from home. She'd been going into the office. Four days oh, a week wow. until Friday, because wow. they were trying to figure out how to set her how to set up the technology for her to be able to work remotely. We finally got that, so that's going to be a huge weight off my shoulders. There's there's two groups of people that I appreciate now more than ever: teachers for one, mm. just the, and then I think about single parents because I yeah. am not a single parent, but for four days a week I was working from home at a first grader who homeschooling a first grader, and my four year old who is only in preschool. She doesn't have any actual work to do, but just keeping her happy and entertained. Thankfully, the weather's been decent. We've been able to get in the backyard and jump on the trampoline and play in the treehouse. But it's it wears you out, and there's been a couple times where I I, I won't lie, like I feel like I'm starting to crack. <laughs> and I just imagine what you know the the psychology like what happens in people's minds when they're isolated and just put under this extreme stress. I have a whole lot of respect for, or more respect, not that I didn't have respect before, but people like first responders who are just in mm-hmm. this 24 seven. And it's like, you never have that chance to let your brain just you know clear the cash in your mind and start over. You're just, it's just constant. Yeah. I do think there's something about that with this situation where even though obviously like my life, I'm not in the we're not in the kind of front lines of people going out and helping or even working in grocery stores or stuff like that. But that kind of low level of just thinking about it, it, it it's funny because I feel like after having the Lebanese revolution, I feel like since October, it's like, I've, Oh, I just have this like low level of like 
okay, if this happens, then that means this. And you realize like how much emotional energy it kind of takes. And I just find like reading is one of my favorite things. And I, I can read a book like I can sit and spend a Sunday reading a book. Like that's a great day for me. But now I struggle to concentrate. I really have to like trick myself to get into it. And that's something that I love, you know, and you kind of have a lot more empathy, I think, for people that are living in those kind of situations all the time. You know, you realize how much it takes from us. Right. Like how, how noisy it can be in, in certain people's heads. Does it, you're talking about reading, like I can imagine just like reading a, a breezy novel might feel a bit trite in this, in these conditions. Is that, is that kind of what you're talking about or was it something else about not being able to concentrate? Yeah. I don't know. I I've actually been reading on book Twitter. There's a lot of stuff about this, about like, sh- are, is it easier to read kind of easy things right now? Or do you kind of want to read more hard things? Cause you feel like like, do you need that escape to be a total escape or do you want it to be something that is intellectually stimulating? For me, I just read Swing Time by Zadie Smith and I can't recommend it enough. And it's a great book for travelers because it's about this British woman, but she's doing this kind of aid project in um, Western Africa and she lives in New York. And it's one of those books that, I think especially because I basically just moved from somewhere internationally into quarantine. So I'm kind of dealing with this whiplash of where am I? And then I'm not in Lebanon. Like I sometimes will wake up in the morning and still think that I'm in Lebanon. And this book was this really interesting mix of cultures that I feel like I kind of, it was the exact book that I needed at that time. If that makes sense. Well, you took, you said, this is something we didn't talk about at all. Are you under, under full quarantine at the moment? Well, so when I came back, I knew that I should be because that's what in Europe and the Middle East, all countries were mandating. Weirdly enough, when I came back to the U.S., I mean, there were no, I flew into JFK, one of our biggest airports. There was one sign that said, if you have been to China, tell the CDC. Like, And that was on March 12th that I landed there. Like, that's not, they didn't even ask me what other countries I'd been to. They didn't take any temperatures. So I went into like a 14-day self-isolation, which um, was kind of, it's hard to move somewhere and then be in isolation. <laughs> but luckily, you know, I'm from a small town and neighbors were dropping off groceries and that that was really nice. It made me feel very welcome. Um, and then once I got out of that, New York State was in shelter in place. So... And that's kind of been the joke in my family because my, my parents and my sister actually aren't here right now. So I'm like sheltering in place alone in my hometown when my whole family was like, come back from Lebanon. And I'm like, but where are you guys? Yeah. Where are they? <laughs> uh, my parents live in New Mexico for my dad's job in the winter. And then my sister is in DC. And honestly, New York is not a great place to be right now, especially like New York city and Long Island. So Um, I think in a few weeks, my parents will come home, but right now it doesn't really make sense. Also, they can't. So, so you're home alone is what you're saying. Yeah. I I feel another movie script coming on. Yeah, definitely. That's gotta be so bizarre. It's it's really weird. Cause it's also not like, this is my childhood home. I've never really like lived here. So I'm just like running around, like doing all the things I'm not supposed to, but like my teenage rules, you know? Where are you sleeping? What room are you sleeping in? 
Um, the guest bedroom, but I've thought about changing. I, part of me wants to use my sister's room. I feel like that would be a real power move. <laughs> that would be a power move. And she's in no position to stop you. No, that would be the easiest way to get her here, actually, is if I just like fully moved into her room. <laughs> I love that. I love that so much. So you never, so forgive me if I missed this part of the story, but you're talking about the the variety of different ways to get home and airlines and the choices. What was the actual airline and route that you finally ended up taking to get home? So I chose, there were a few flights. Again, I think this was luck or strategy. Um, there are a few flights and Turkish Airways was the one that I chose because I knew that there hadn't been a lot of cases of coronavirus in Turkey. And so I knew that they wouldn't end up with a ban going to the US. So, and I knew Europe was more risky. Um, and then when I was in Istanbul, that was when Trump announced that um, in like two days, no one from Europe or no people with Schengen passports could go into the US. So um, that was also something that was like I had to think about. And then five days later, they ended up closing the Lebanese airport. So I definitely, without a doubt, made the right decision. But it was very stressful and traumatic experience. And I've never been on... Like I was the middle seat, middle aisle for a 10 hour Turkish Airways flight, which Turkish Airways is great by the way, but I've never been more grateful in my life to be on a flight. And I've never been on a flight that was so full that everyone was so grateful to be on. Like it was, it was a really spooky feeling. And at a certain time, I remember, I think when we were walking on, I just thought the world has changed. And like what we thought of as travel or what we thought of as possible is like, it's not that it's not going to be able to happen again, but I think that we lived in the golden age of travel without knowing it. Wow. That, that, that's powerful stuff. And for all intents and purposes, based on the evidence we're seeing, I think you, you may be onto something with that, unfortunately. So what do you, I mean, I think we can all verbalize what we're hopeful will happen, but what do you, what do you think will happen? What, what do you think the world's going to look like, say six months from now as, as it relates to, to travel and getting out back into the world? I think it will, um, a lot of people are saying, and I don't know if you're hearing this as well from people on the show, but um, I think it's gonna open up in waves. I think Americans, we're gonna for the first time ever experience like not having a quote unquote good passport because it seems like we're gonna be struggling with this for a long time. I think countries that have eradicated it or it's lessened there, they'll be able to travel like more regionally between each other before, um, the world opens up. And then when the world opens up, this is actually what I think is going to be a more lasting legacy is a lot of airlines are going to go under. Like the most recent estimate, the IATA said that the global airline industry is going to lose like over $200 billion. And, and that, like, that was from two and a half weeks ago. I think it's gotten so depressing that they've just stopped doing the estimates because I've been covering this for Forbes and originally, like in February, they said coronavirus was going to cost the airline industry like $30 billion. And now it's over $200 billion. <laughs> Like, I don't even know what, what that estimate is now. Like, a lot of airlines are going to go under. I think we're not going to see these flight deals that we saw. I think a lot of influencers are going to not, like, basically anyone who's working in the industry right now isn't going to make money for the next few months, Right. So people that didn't set them up that themselves up where that would be okay, I think that that's a huge hit. You know, 
even with like people, even with newspapers and stuff, we're seeing them close because of advertising revenue. So for people and things that depend entirely on advertising revenue, it's, it's really tough. And then when is that going to come back and how does that look like? I do think road trips are going to be really popular this summer in America. That has been a theme. Several folks on the show have mentioned that yeah, road um, trips are going to be are going to be big. People, you know, maybe ninety, hundred miles from home, whatever's within that radius, and trying to provide some some encouragement and hopefully a silver lining for some of those smaller, the small businesses in travel. You know, you hear like the you know, the multi billion dollar losses for airlines, but on the other side of that equation, you have your small innkeepers and your bed and breakfast and really like hyper local tour operators who have zero business, like none. Yeah. And if they can weather this storm that maybe some of them will start to see a little bit of a trickle back when people start to branch out a little bit, hopefully on the road. So I'm all trying to find some positivity there. I do. And you know, actually when I think of Lebanon, that's one thing that I'm really sad about. Like the country has this amazing, right in April, they do this hike through of the whole country. It's called the Lebanese mountain trail. And so they have all these like um, little villages that partake and all these incredible ecotourism initiatives across the country. And None of that is happening. I do think one thing that will be interesting is seeing, because, you know, some countries in Central America and like Central Africa, they just shut their borders down like immediately. Like I have a friend in Cameroon and Cameroon was like, not that a lot of people are going for tourism there, but Cameroon was like, oh yeah, our airport's closing in three hours. I think the same thing happened in Peru. I think it also happened in Morocco, Guatemala. I think countries that did that, I think people will be much like that's intense, I think. And I don't think that's something that I ever thought would happen, you know? And it's funny because I think when I lived in Lebanon, people always were like, oh, like, do you have a, a get out plan? And in fact, like Lebanon handled this whole situation with public health very well. They closed their airport in a good way. Um, and other countries actually, I think it was a lot more difficult. So um, let's let's get back just a little bit to to what you're doing now in terms of work, and then and then we'll say goodbye. I feel like I could talk to you all day. This has just been such a, a yeah, an interesting conversation so and so many twists and turns and topics. But I'm just I'm looking on on Forbes at your your uh, contributor page, and it looks like you had a, a a significant gap. It looks like from March 8th up until March 30th of nothing. But then in the last several days, you're starting to publish again. So what's that workflow like? What kind of assignments are you getting, and how are you seeking information and getting your work done? Yeah, for Forbes, um, I've been covering travel for them for five years, I think, or maybe six. So honestly, a lot, um, that's pretty well set up. And I'm finding a lot of people in the travel industry, even though there's this whole segment that no one is traveling right now, theoretically. Um, yeah, I think it's something like 4 billion people are stuck at home right now. But even though no one is traveling, there's a lot of travel news. So for me, that's been pretty great. And I, I also am finding like, because there's less work, maybe overall, people are really responsive in terms of getting quotes and getting back to me. I think um, for Forbes, I'm trying to cover, I'm trying to cover the State Department's response. Because in many ways, as an American who was living abroad, I do feel like their messaging was pretty poor um, and they didn't do a good job of communicating even though Lebanon was a country that was very communicative the State Department like they closed the embassy two days after the airport closed without telling us beforehand um, anyway so I'm trying to cover that 
Um, and actually, if there's anyone listening here who is an American who was stuck abroad, please be in touch because I think it's really interesting to see like what countries reacted differently. And then I'm trying to do some travel inspiration or positive stories because I think as you know, this becomes our new normal. It's not just a few weeks, right? I'm going into four weeks of this. And I think we need things that aren't necessarily focused on that. So I'm trying to continue with profiles of women in the travel industry who I think are doing really great jobs and being successful. Um, yeah, just highlighting different kinds of travel stories. Um, yeah. And I, I, I'm finding that when I talk to people, there's people are really happy to connect right now, which is a, a silver lining. I don't know. Are you finding that with your work? Indeed. And that's actually what this project, this Travel Unites, this project was born out of. It was born out of a desire to to connect with other travelers or people who are in the travel industry. Because sometimes it's hard to separate those two because I feel like, I've, I've said this before, people have probably heard me say this several times by now, but people don't typically get into the travel industry on a whim. There's something, uh, something about travel that draws them into it. And there's a million different paths you can take within the travel industry, but it's just not an... Uh, an industry you stumble into because you know, it was time to get a job or because your parents are kicking you out. So you just went and became a travel advisor. So the point of all that is, is just connecting people with each other and, and with the world and letting others know that there are, that we're, we're all, we're united through travel. We're ready to travel again when the world opens. But for now, that's not an option. We're, we're taking precautions. We're being safe. We're being healthy. We're using these amazing technological tools we have at our fingertips in 2020. I'm very grateful that I was an experienced Zoom user before this. <laughs> I've been using Zoom for a couple of years, so that was a nice little nice little perk. But the, the need for contact, the need for connection, even if it's a virtual connection, is super strong and incredibly, incredibly important. And Alexander, we definitely want to hear more from you as the story unfolds. We want to follow up about Leo. We want to hear when he arrives home safely. And I'm going to put your contact information uh, below this video in the Facebook feed, as well as on the website, travelunites.com when we put this up in the podcast format so folks can get in touch. And I'll also put a link to your contributor page at Forbes so they can read your, your dispatches and your articles and everything you got now and moving forward. Alexandra Talti, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for taking some time. Go run amok in your parents' house. Yeah. <laughs> Party in the parents' bedroom next. Right. Party we'll one. Party we'll, tag, we'll tag your sister. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Aaron, for having me. And I, I really do think that projects like this right now are so important. And I really like that. So I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Well, and you're now part of it forever. We thank you so much, Alexander. Take care. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Be sure to check out TravelUnitesUs.com for all the latest from the Travel Unites Us community.